Well, good morning. We are uh, in a series called Perfect, when in reality, we're actually in a series called No Perfect, where we're taking a look at this quest that we all seem to have from time to time to be perfect in our relationships and in our world, and we're trying to expose the futility of that experience. And we recognize that we are not perfect. So this morning, we're going to talk about the idea that there are no perfect parents. And I'll tell you, I was nervous. I am nervous this morning. I was nervous as I wrote this sermon this week. And that is like the first cardinal rule of public speaking. You should never tell your audience that you're nervous. But I am this morning, and I'll tell you why. Because in this series, the first two weeks, we had experts in their field. We had people who were scholarly, who knew their stuff, who had committed large chunks of their adult life to perfecting the work that they do, and they were experts. I am not an expert in parenting, and so I'm nervous about that. The second reason that I'm a little nervous this morning is because I recognize that this topic is a deeply personal one, and that there are some in our midst this morning who for whatever reason, are not parents. And that's difficult. Or maybe you have had estranged relationships with your own kids, and that is difficult. Or maybe you yourself as a child had a difficult relationship with your parents, and that is hard. And so this morning I'm nervous because I hold that very closely as I deliver this message. And I want you to know that if that is you this morning, that I've been praying for you this entire week. Because I believe that there are truths contained in this message that regardless of your experience with parenting will have some impact and some value. But before we move forward, I'd like to pray. So will you bow your head and pray with me? Father, I recognize this morning that there are folks in this room who even now have learned the topic this morning or maybe getting a little nervous. And so I pray that you would pour your spirit onto this place, that you would calm our hearts, that you would calm our soul, and that we would open ourselves up to hearing what you would have to teach us this morning. It is in your name that we do all these things. Amen. So as we move deeper into this topic, let me make it crystal clear if I haven't already done so, there is no such thing as a perfect parent. Perfection in the area of parenting, or really any relationship, is not something to be achieved. However, we spend a tremendous amount of time and energy trying to make it so. We read about it. We Google it. We worry about it. We compare ourselves to each other. We believe to an unhealthy level that if we don't do this thing called parenting perfectly, our kids will somehow suffer. When in reality, research shows us that the absence of parenting definitely has a negative impact on the outcome of kids showing up for our kids moves the dial in the right direction. We live in an age where the pressure to perform, the pressure to be, at least appear to be perfect, is in an all-time high. 
We, in an effort to make our kids the best they can possibly be, strive for protection. And our own sense of value as parents is directly correlated to the comfort level of our own kids. I came across an article written by a New York Times writer. She's a mom, and she writes for the New York Times from a mom's perspective. And she says this, Somehow, as we've learned to treat children as people with desires and rights of their own, we've stopped treating ourselves and one another as such. But that's not hard to understand when the reigning cultural narrative tells us that we are no longer lively, inspired women with our own ideas and emotions, so much as facilitators meant to employ at all times the calm, helpful tones of diplomats. No wonder so many of us have stopped listening to all those people trying to tell us to surrender, embrace our inner housewife, have it all, accept less than it all, be more French, be less attached, be more attached, lean in, lean out. Today's absurdly conflicting notions of motherhood, and I would insert parenthood, play far better as comedy. No matter what the script says, we don't have to perform such a farcical, unrealistic role. We can rip the S off our chests. We still are the same underneath it all. Being a parent is the greatest and most challenging thing I have ever attempted in my life. There are days where Margie and I feel like complete failures. And there are days where we feel like total heroes. It's hard because there's no instruction manual. There's, my kid didn't come with a book that said, here's how your kid needs its, to be raised. There are no classes on how to deal with my kids and their issues. Parenting is hard. Uh, in preparation for this, I stumbled across a video. It's actually a commercial. It's kind of ironic. It's a commercial for a storage company. Uh, but the truth contained in the commercial is pretty powerful. So I want to share it with you this morning. All right, you still with me? So at the very beginning of this message, I want to tell you, you're not perfect. You're doing a pretty good job most of the time. You can take the S off your chest. You can take a deep breath and be encouraged this morning because you are absolutely not alone. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5. We're going to spend some time in what may be a familiar text for some of you. But it's the story of a father and his daughter. The father is a man by the name of Jairus. Jairus is a leader in the synagogue. He isn't the primary teacher in the synagogue, but he's a leader. He's the guy who keeps things running. He's seen as a leader in his community. He invests into his community. People like him in his community. And to everyone in his world, he looks like a guy who has it all together. Jairus has a daughter, and she is very, very sick. In fact, she's dying. Jairus' daughter is around 12 years old, and in this culture, in that time, this is when people began to make the transition from a child to an adult. So she is this young woman just at the beginning of her adult life. She, and, and Jairus has tried everything to heal his daughter, but nothing is working. And the story picks up, we're in his home, and he's with his daughter, and she is getting worse. 
In fact, the family has gathered around. The servants in the home have all gathered around. The doctors are there. And it's obvious that she isn't going to make it. And so the household is preparing for a funeral. And in this culture and in this day, for lots of reasons, funerals took place immediately after someone passed. And there were people that would be hired to come into the home to mourn and to grieve and to create a sense of chaos that was symbolic of the chaotic nature of someone passing from this life into the next. So there was chaos that was about to happen in the home. And everyone was in the process of preparing for a funeral. Jairus is there with his daughter. And he overhears some conversation about something that's happening near the sea. He hears that the commotion is around a teacher, a healer, a miracle worker. Jairus was likely very familiar with this person, this teacher, because of his leadership in the synagogue and because of his co-workers, all of them were beginning to grow increasingly more aware of this teacher. The teacher is growing in popularity, and as a result, he represented a very threat to the existence of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of the, of the synagogue. And they conspired even at this point to, to remove him from the scene. And Jairus would have been a part of those conversations. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us about Jairus' own opinions about the teacher. But what happens next in the story is absolutely, uncharacteristically amazing. Because Jairus does something radical. He runs to the beach. Jairus takes off from the house and he sprints to where the teacher is. And in this society, men of Jairus' standing, they didn't sprint anywhere. They didn't run anywhere. It would have been seen as undignified and cumbersome. But Jairus is a dad with a daughter who's dying. And so he shakes off what is right, what is proper, what is normal, and he sprints to the beach. A last-ditch effort of a hurting parent, desperate to find healing for his daughter. And this is where we pick up the story in Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with them, and a large crowd followed and pressed in around him. The position of this father is important. He comes as an advocate for his daughter. No agenda, no bargaining, no quid pro quo. His prayer in this moment is one of total surrender and humility. Life is beyond his control, and he doesn't know where else to go. So he places his faith and his daughter's life at the feet of Jesus. He was risking it all. His co-workers would not have liked this. The people of his community would not have fully understood it. No one would have been thrilled with Jairus' behavior. But as a parent, 
We understand the reality of his situation. And we're often put in situations where we are required to step up for our kids. Recently, my youngest, Piper, came down with the stomach flu. Maybe this has run through your home at some point this winter. And I heard her struggling in the night, and eventually she called out for us. And I ran into her room. Maybe as a parent, you've had that late night experience where you've, in a state of panic, fumbled from your bed into the room of a loved one. And the moment I walked into the room, I saw the look on her face. And in one fail swoop, in one motion, I grabbed her garbage can, (laughs) I emptied her garbage can, and I held it to her face just as her mouth opened and vomit filled the garbage can. I was like a vomit ninja. (laughs) And as soon as that episode was over, Piper and I made eye contact like, did that just happen? (laughs) But as parents, we have these moments where we would do anything to keep our kids from experiencing pain. We take on their suffering. We feel it. That is what the love of a parent, that is what the love for a concerned loved one is all about. This is where Jairus is, and he makes a choice, a conscious decision. In this moment of pure desperation, he chooses to put his trust, his faith, in a person. That person is Jesus. Jairus was a fierce advocate for his daughter. But then the story takes a very significant turn. Look at verse 25. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt her body that, was, uh, that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet And trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And he says to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. This is a story within a story. In fact, this story of this woman is something that we could spend an entire Sunday on. But we're not going to this morning because it's there to serve a point. And I imagine the scene that there are people everywhere in the middle of this. And there's a dad who desperately needs to get this man to his house, to his daughter. And can you sense the desperation in this moment for Jairus? He had risked it all. He advocated for his child, and it was working. Jesus was on the way to his home. And then he stops. I picture Jesus stopping and the crowd sort of swarming around him and the woman. Jairus getting sort of cut out of that picture, and eventually Jairus ends up standing on the curb watching this story within a story unfold. 
Jairus is a man of influence, a man of stature and power. And he's bringing Jesus to his house. And all of a sudden, this woman out of nowhere touches Jesus' robe. And this woman, societally, is an outcast. She's considered a nobody by her community. And in her moment of desperation, she simply wants to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. And her faith tells her that this will heal her. And it does. And in the middle of Jairus' nightmare, Jesus stops and says to this nobody, somebody has touched me. And then he does something absolutely incredible. He uses a word that hasn't been used very often by him. He calls her his daughter. And in that moment, he not only heals her physically, but he heals her spiritually as well. But what about Jairus? He's alone on the curb watching this thing unfold. And while this is happening in front of him, Jairus receives some bad news. Look at verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus turns to Jairus and says, Don't be afraid. Just believe. And you get a sense in this one little statement that something has shifted. Up until this point, Jairus has grabbed Jesus and is dragging him to his home. And in the middle of that, Jesus stops and turns the tide. Because now, Jesus is leading Jairus to his home. Once again, Jairus is faced with a choice. He can leave the teacher and run to his home and begin the grieving process, or he can believe. And this is one of those moments. You know the moments, ones that just hang there in the air that seem way longer than they really are. This is the very moment where Jairus surrenders. And as a parent, there are moments in our journey where it only comes down to surrender. Now, our fears are real. They are ever-present. But our God is a God who's designed, whose desire is to cast out fear. Fear should have no place in your parenting. If you parent from a place of fear, fear of the world, fear of the internet, fear of the boogeyman, you name the fear. But if you parent out of a place of fear, you will eventually stunt your children's development. You will stunt their growth, both emotionally and spiritually, because you will raise children who grow up with a warped sense of the world and absolutely no concern for it. Jairus is afraid. And Jesus says, don't be, just believe. Now, I'm 100% sure that the fear didn't instantaneously leave Jairus. I don't think for one second Jairus said, sure, man, no problem. Let's grab a latte, and then when we're done, we'll head over to my house, and we'll see what's going on. That's not what Jairus is doing. What happens next is that Jesus takes the lead, and they move to Jairus' home. This is Jairus' belief in motion. This is where he transitions from believing in the power of Jesus to believing in Jesus the man. The story within the story teaches us to believe, even when we can't see it. 
And as parents, we can't be limited by what we see and what we hear because oftentimes we are required to put our own faith and trust in that which we cannot see. For me, personally, this means I can't be controlled by the logical. There is part of parenting that is completely illogical, especially as a dad to young girls. There are moments of complete chaos. And I have to not be afraid. And I have to simply believe. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 puts it this way. So we fix our eyes not what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Sometimes, sometimes, there is way more happening under the surface in the lives of our kids Things that we cannot see. And God is doing things in their lives that we cannot fully and logically understand. And we think that if we simply get them to church or we focus on behavior modification or if we make them pray every night before they go to sleep, that these things will make our kids good. But the greatest legacy that you can leave your child is this very truth. Don't be afraid. Just believe. So let's see how the story ends. Look at verse 37. This is Jesus again. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in there, uh, in, went, went into where the child was. And he took her by the hand and he said to her, Talitha kom, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Jesus, Jairus, Peter, James, and John enter the house. The house is filled with people and commotion and chaos. The mourners are there, and they're being paid to be loud and emotional. They are professionals hired to create chaos. The more chaos, the better. And when Jesus says, the child is not dead, she is sleeping, those people laugh at him. Look what Jesus does. This is as much a parenting tip as it is a biblical truth. Look what he does. He cuts the critics out. The words used here in this passage are the exact same words used to describe Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. This is an active, engaged Jesus kicking the chaos out of the house. There's force in these words. and There's strength in what Jesus is doing. And as parents... We hear criticism wrapped in advice every day, don't we? Whether it's a word from a neighbor or a note from a teacher or a weird look from our own parents or the images on Facebook of your friends doing amazing things with their kids while you're struggling to get them to brush their own teeth. We hear criticism every single day, whether it's in our heads or externally sourced. We need to push that out of our lives. Why? Because the critics will distract you from being fully present for your kids. 
They were a distraction to what Jesus was about to do next, and he pushed them out of the house. You see, moms and dads, I think our greatest struggle in today's culture is to push away the constant voice of criticism and just be present for our kids. If you hear nothing else I say this morning, hear this. Kids don't need perfect parents. They need you, but not just part of you. They need all of you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. When you're distracted by the critics, we cannot be fully present and emotionally present for our children. And that is what they need most. They need you, not your stuff, not your perfection. They need you to be emotionally present for them. Look at what Jesus does after he rids the house of distraction. He brings mom, he brings dad together. And with the other hand, he picks up the hand of Jairus' daughter and he says, get up. He touches her. He brings her out of her sleep and he unites the family again. And in that moment of restoration, he permanently alters the spiritual trajectory of this family. A number of years ago, over breakfast, as we're trying to get out of the house and get everybody off to school, I discover that my oldest daughter, Abby, has been wearing her snow pants in class all day long, which I thought was super strange. And I thought to myself, I bet no one else is doing that. That's just weird. You can't wear your snow pants all day in class. What I failed to realize is there wasn't enough time for transition, and she didn't want to miss out on anything with her friends, so he left, she left her pants on all throughout the day. Well, we got into a massive, massive fight about it. I don't know why. It just was a weird thing. We, I just was like, this bothers me, so we're going to fight about it right now over Cheerios. <laughs> and then we got in the car, and we fought about it on the way to school. And as she left the car, she was crying. And as I drove off, I thought, good for her. Let her suffer in that a little bit. That'll teach her. <laughs> and I got about halfway down the street on my way to work as a pastor And I was immediately convicted, and I turned the car around, and I went to the desk, and I said, can you please call Abby Davis out of her class? And she came out of her class, completely befuddled by why I was there. And I got down on my knee, and I said, I'm so, so sorry. Will you please forgive me for being crazy this morning? And she grabbed me by the neck, and she said that she loved me, and she went off to class. I went off to work, and it was a different trajectory for her and a different trajectory for me. Margie and I make mistakes every single day with our kids, but through it all, we've learned that simple truth. Kids don't need perfect parents. They just need you, all of you, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And so as we close this morning, I'm going to give you three simple things that if you put these as a focus of your home, you're 75, 85% of the way there. I want you to leave encouraged by these three things, and they're this. Number one, advocate for your children. Jairus runs through the streets like a crazy person for his daughter. He puts it all on the line for her. He risks his life, his friends, his job, his standings, everything for her. Our kids don't need us to push them towards Jesus. Our kids don't need us to put Jesus on them. Our kids need to see us run to Jesus on their behalf. Our kids need to see us fall down at the feet of Jesus and beg for their lives. Our kids, 
Hear this. Our kids will respond to our relationship with Jesus long before they will make it their own. Your relationship with God is the single most important thing you can show your kids if, and this is a big if, if it's real. If it isn't real, if that relationship with Jesus isn't a part of your daily life, they will sniff that out. The second thing I leave you with this morning is belief drives out fear. Jairus believed in the power of Jesus before he believed in the person of Jesus. When we put our trust, our faith in Jesus, we, it requires us to let go of our fear. Parenting out of fear doesn't work. Parenting without the power of Jesus doesn't work. Our kids need to know that you aren't afraid of the world around them. And they need to know where that lack of fear comes from. And that comes from Jesus. The third thing is cut the critics out of your life. Jesus did something very significant there. He pushes out the critical spirit from the home, and then he unites the family. With one hand, he physically removes the critics, and with the other hand, he gently lifts Jairus' daughter's hand and wakes her from her sleep. Your life, my life, is filled with people who have opinions and critical feedback. And if you've heard any of my sermons over the years, you'll know this is a reoccurring theme for me. Push them out of the picture. Develop a vision for your family and don't let anyone try to alter it. Critics are a distraction to you being fully present for your kids. Your kids only need you. They need you to be on their level. They need you to be fully present for them. They need you to wrestle with them. They need you to tickle them. They need you to get on the floor and play hours and hours of Monopoly. <laughs> Why? Because they need to know that they are not an inconvenience to your life. And I'll be completely transparent with you. Getting on the floor and playing make-believe, playing cars, drawing, playing tea parties and things like that are not things that come natural to me. That's, God did not wire me up to be that guy. But I do it because I want my kids to know that they're not an inconvenience to my life. So being present for your kids will likely mean you'll have to do things that you don't like to do. So we have to advocate for our kids. We have to believe in the power of Jesus. And we have to work really hard to cut the critics out of our lives. And when we do, if we do, I'm telling you, your kids will be fine. You will be fine. You cannot break them if that is a focus of your home. Now let me leave you with one last thought before I pray. Because I know that there are some here this morning who are thinking to themselves, it's too late. I've already messed that up. Or maybe you don't have kids yet. You're thinking, I don't know where this applies. Or maybe you've got some parental issues from your childhood. I'm telling you, it's never, ever, ever too late. It's never, ever, ever too late to turn the trajectory of your family And allow the power of Jesus to reunite your family. It's never, ever too late. I mean never. 
And you may be saying to yourself, but I have unresolved issues with my parents and my parents aren't still here. You can still apply these three truths to people who have gone on. And I want to challenge you with that this morning. And I want you to leave here encouraged by knowing that it's never, ever too late. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, we come with this deeply personal issue of parenting. And while we've wrapped this morning around the topic of parenting, the reality of it is your power can heal all wounds. All wounds. So God, I'm asking that you would allow us to leave this place encouraged for having been here this morning, re-engaged in being the best possible parents we can be. Not perfect. Just the best that we can be. And the only way that works is when we trust in you. and We allow you to drive out the fear. We allow you to drive out the critics so that we can be fully present for the loved ones in our life. So will you do that for us this morning, God? Will you encourage us as we leave this place to go home and be different parents, be different caretakers of the people you've placed in our life? And I promise when it's all said and done, we'll give you all the honor, the glory, and the praise because it is in your name that we pray all these things. Amen. So as a part of our worship this morning, I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. We're going to receive our offering this morning, and I'm going to pray for it, and I'm going to pray for you. So will you bow your heads, and let's pray together. Father, as we give back to you out of what you have given to us, we release it. And we ask God that you would use it in a powerful way to transform lives, to encourage marriages, to restore families, to provide tutoring and water and freedom all around the world, would you use this sacrificial giving in that way? We are so grateful that you are our good, good Father. And regardless of the worldly example of fatherhood that we've been given, we can trust in that fact that you are good. It is in your name that we pray. Amen. So that's the truth. We give you thanks. Because without him, it's incompletely possible. Will you stand and we'll pray and we'll be done. Father, we do thank you again for this morning, for the opportunity to be together, for the encouragement that comes from your word this morning. Will you equip us, encourage us, allow us to leave this place more in love with you than when we walked in? Remind us throughout the week of your goodness and your presence in our life. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. And there are folks down here that would love to pray with you. If you'd like to pray, come on down. Otherwise, have a great week.